Hey, my name is Sean, and I like learning about how things work and why. By day, I'm a designer and researcher, and I moonlight by interviewing exceptional people here on Promise. Every episode of Promise is an open-ended discussion on the idea of Promise itself. Whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there, Promise showcases tomorrow's heroes before they get famous. This week, I chat with Brock Ford, co-founder of Metadata. Metadata is setting out to save lives by minimizing medication errors. We chat about the cost of these medication errors, why this problem has never been solved, the data-driven solution being built, the regulatory challenges of medical tech, using said tech to build trust, and how one small tool could change the face of medicine. Please enjoy my discussion with Brock Ford. Today on the show, we welcome Brock Ford, co-founder of Metadata. Metadata is a software tool intended to recommend the right medication to the right patient. But that description doesn't do it justice, so I'll let Brock fill in the details. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I think, yeah, Metadata is creating software which assists clinicians in making the best medication choices for a specific patient. It comes about because of my co-founder's experience as a pharmacist. So we're taking data on the specific patient and saying, given all these factors that relate to that patient, what is the best medication for them, putting the patient at the center of that decision? So it allows clinicians to concentrate on things more important necessarily than that, get the diagnoses right and whatnot, and the clinical side's really taking cover from a pharmaceutical perspective. Okay. So what is the problem that's actually trying to be tackled here, aside from just prescribing medicine. What is the current issue with medicine prescription? It came about really because of the experience that Siobhan, my co-founder, had. So like I said, she's a pharmacist by trade. She's worked across a number of different areas of healthcare, but one of those was within a hospital setting. She worked as a hospital pharmacist, and her job was pretty much to go around to the different wards and check what had been prescribed for all the different patients. She'd come to me at the end of the day and kind of say, um, I haven't seen any patient that hasn't had at least one error. It was quite overwhelming. Doctors are very time poor. When you talk about those in a hospital, they have so many things going on and they get a patient come in, they've had a heart attack, they treat the heart attack, they don't necessarily have the time to consider other factors, research all the specific drugs. So it was really her job to, to check that. And there were so many errors that were occurring. I guess the problem is really around that medication error space. We did a lot more research into that. And we found that it's not just something that she was experiencing, but it's something that is brought across the entire health spectrum. Within Australia, for instance, it costs about $1.4 billion a year. It's on average 1.6 errors per patient within a hospital. But even beyond that, when you look at other areas like aged care, it becomes even more prominent. So within residential aged care facilities, it's about 98% of all patients have at least one medication error. I mean, that's all of them. There's on average three errors per patient. So it's a massive problem. Getting that right can really have a massive impact on patient outcomes. And that's really where our focus has been. But even beyond that, there's a huge benefit to clinicians from a time-saving perspective. They don't have the time to worry about all the intricacies of every element of what they're supposed to consider. So we take the pain out of that and say, 
from a prescribing perspective, here's what the best practice clinical recommendation would be. And so it gives that recommendation to them. So they don't have to worry too much about that. They don't have to go away and do the research. So we're really taking that and giving that as a benefit to them as well. Okay, so is the problem with doctors, clinicians who would be prescribing this medication, yes, they're time poor, but is the problem really that they might not be up to date with the research necessarily? It's probably a number of factors. So that is one of them. So obviously, there's a lot of things occurring and a lot of kind of things hitting the market. And that's only going to become more and more of an issue given, you know, Obviously, in the COVID space, we saw expedited clinical trials and whatnot, and that's probably going to become more of the norm. Things are probably going to hit the market more and more, so it's going to be harder to keep up to date with everything that's occurring. Understanding all that and being up to date with clinical practice and guidelines is one thing that's almost impossible, and so it's it's difficult for them to kind of be able to do that. But at the same time as well, there's a lot of other factors that are playing into it. One of the key factors that differentiates us from other companies that are looking at medication errors is emissions of therapy. Like I said, a patient comes into hospital and they're prescribed X, Y, Z because that treats what they've come in for, but it doesn't consider the other factors like what they were taking before they came in. So medications that relate to a heart attack, that's required in the short term, but what do you do about the other medications? Do they continue to take them? Will there be an interaction if there is? Should we reduce the dose on one of those? All this kind of stuff is guideline and protocolized, but it's almost impossible for someone to be able to retain that knowledge when they have so many other things going on. So it's taking that pain out of that and allowing them to spend time on, on the more you know, the difficult stuff that, that they shouldn't have to necessarily worry about. Okay. I can definitely see where Siobhan's background plays into this and a specific motivation for wanting to solve this problem. But what about yourself? What's your background and how do you fit into this team? Yeah, so my background's quite varied, in fact. I come from more of a commercial strategy space. I've spent the last seven years across insurance and financial sectors working in commercial risk management roles. But I actually also have postgraduate qualifications in data science, so cover off the data elements, the analytics space. I'm no software engineer, but like our MVP, I built that in a low-code environment. It's not the prettiest thing, but it's serving its purpose, which was really for us to be able to get feedback and prove that this was a problem that we were seeing beyond ourselves, but also it's helping clinicians as well. I act as a person wearing multiple hats, but I'd say more on the kind of commercial side and help out with the tech stuff as well. Okay. So you just mentioned looking at the problem and noticing that it wasn't something applicable to just yourselves. What was the kind of research that, that you did that confirmed your suspicions? Yeah, it's been a long journey, actually. We took the approach where we really wanted to get to the bottom of the problem as much as we could before we even built anything. You know, the whole mantra that build it and they will come, that doesn't necessarily hold up in the startup space, but it probably holds up even less in the health space. We wanted to really understand what the problem was And so we took multiple approaches to doing so. We did a lot of research ourselves. So we read multiple different articles and that's where we kind of got some of those statistics from. But the problem with some of that is that one, it's difficult to ascertain the size of the problem because quite often these things are not reported to the level that they probably should be because if someone has something that occurs, it results in 
them having an extra night in hospital or something like that, that kind of stuff isn't necessarily put down as a medication error. We said there's a lot of literature out there which highlights this is a problem. One of the, the amaz- amazing stats we found was that in the US, medication errors cost $530 billion a year. These research articles have you know, taken place and a lot of research has been done into that. So that was huge in that it opened our eyes, but we also really wanted to get a taste for this kind of thing firsthand. We had Siobhan's experience, but we wanted to see what was happening at the coalface. So we spoke to a lot of different clinicians. We've spoken to probably over 200 relevant stakeholders now to really understand what that looked like, to say, is this a problem? And if it is a problem, what's causing the problem? And then what could a potential solution look like? We really didn't want to go in there with a, here's what we think is needed or here's what we think will be the best solution. We wanted to hear that through these in this interview process. And so we got a lot of amazing feedback, a lot of people saying it's a massive problem, but we also found that there was different problems within different sectors. So obviously from a patient outcome perspective, the patient wants to get the right medication. So there's, there's a clear benefit to getting it right for the patient. But as I was saying earlier, like from the clinician perspective, they want that as well. But there's also a massive time benefit in that if we can save them time, if we're talking about GPs, our research suggests on average 20 seconds per patient to get the right medication choice. Now, you know, that's not a huge amount of time. But when you add that up over multiple patients a day, millions of patients throughout the year, it's a huge amount. And we actually found that by using that time saving over and over again, they would actually be able to get more patients in, which would come with an added cost benefit for them as well. So really understanding what the customer was doing and where this problem was coming from, I think was key to us in that we didn't want to build anything. We didn't want to spend any money doing anything until we really knew where and what this problem was and how we could potentially solve it. That was the approach we really took. And we were were very lean. We've remained very lean in that we've pretty much done everything ourselves. So yeah, I think that was a great experience for us just understanding that. And it really gave us an unrivaled insight into the problem and how we could potentially solve it. Yeah, amazing. As a design researcher myself, I absolutely love that you've gone in really deep here to understand the exact problem that you're trying to solve, which actually should segue us nicely into talking about the solution itself. So talking more about metadata, you said you pulled data from basically the best available research that you can get. Where do you source this data from? Is it just through like academic journals or is there a central medical database that you pull from? Yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, so there's a lot of the information is out there and it's stored in multiple different ways. So if I go back to what was occurring when Siobhan was in the hospital setting, it gives an insight because what she would do is a lot of it was obviously within her brain. She knew the stuff. That's why she was a pharmacist. But even then, she would get a specific patient come through. There's a lot of different things. They were taking, you know, seven or eight drugs. Do they interact? All those kind of stuff. So she would then go and look at individual medical databases such as MIMS, OSDI, UpToDate. There's a few out there that help with that. They all have their own kind of specific niches as well. And so she would then go into these databases, search the information, do it. Yep, that makes sense. And then go away and give that recommendation. We're taking that approach and saying, we don't necessarily need the human overlay. We can do this via software. A lot of it is built into these medical databases. So we can extract it from that straight away. And there's tools out there at the moment 
that are doing something like this at a very basic level. In other words, if you put in a drug, they will say, hey, actually, you can't take this drug, this drug, this drug. Or if you put in two drugs, they'll say, hey, wait a minute, these two are interacting, maybe take this one instead. So there are things that do it at a very basic level. But we're going that step ahead by saying, why should you even have to put in the drugs? Why should we not say to you what the best drug should be? the best whole management of their prescribing their medication outcomes. So we're really doing it at that patient level first. So it's saying of the patient information, here's what we think is best, best, best. And one of the key benefits to that is that we're not just looking at do these two drugs interact. We're also saying here's what we think the best drug is. Here's how long they should take it for. Here's the amount they should take. It's really giving that step-by-step view. So all that information I'd say the vast majority of that information exists in multiple forms in different areas. So we're just pulling it from all of those different areas to make this very specific recommendation for that specific patient. Okay, that makes total sense. And there's a couple of questions that I have spinning out from that, which I'll get to a little bit later. I just want to cover the first drug of choice that you're actually going forward with, and that's Paxlovid. So Paxlovid, if anybody doesn't know, is a treatment for COVID, very recently released, which leads me to the question of why Paxlovid specifically, considering that it's so new, the volume of data behind it, I'm assuming, probably isn't that high compared to, say, paracetamol, for example. So yeah, talk us through how you got to Paxlovid as the first drug of choice. Mm, you've probably touched on one of the key points there inadvertently anyway, in that because it's so new, clinicians don't necessarily have the full understanding of it themselves and don't necessarily feel confident to prescribe it, but it's also a fairly complex drug. So I'd say that the reason we chose it was fairly specific in that someone on our advisory board, Dr. Brent Richards, he's a clinician who actually works across multiple different areas, but He works as an intensivist at the Gold Coast University Hospital, and he is a kind of expert in the COVID space and the antiviral medication space. And one of the things he was doing was going out to clinicians to give talks on what potential drugs there could be used to treat COVID. Obviously, given the environment we're in, it was very important. So this was pretty much at the start of the BA4 and BA5, the um new strain that was coming in, we were worried that there was a lot of potential for this to cause us a real big wave, a lot of hospitalizations. At the same time, the flu season was running rampant and it hit earlier and faster than we'd probably expected. There was a real risk of hospitals being overrun. He was out there doing manual presentations to clinicians around the CYP4 and 5 enzyme space, but also antiviral medications. It was quite convenient, I guess, for us. And that's what he was working on. And he came to us and said, you know, I've been doing a lot of speeches to clinicians around this drug Paxlovid in the treatment of COVID-19. And he said, it was quite uh, telling to him the hesitancy within clinicians to potentially prescribe this. Also within the government, the fact that the PBS listing for this drug was fairly strict. There was a whole lot of things going on. He said, I know you guys are looking at medications and assisting in the prescribing of medications could you create a tool which helps clinicians understand this drug better and that's really what it was all about for us it was about creating something which educated clinicians we didn't necessarily want to create something that said 
just do this, this, this. That wasn't the focus. We really wanted to educate them so that they could feel more confident in that. So I'd say that the reason we chose was very much that it was just something that was occurring at a time and it's probably going to continue onwards. It is an efficacious drug in treating COVID-19, which is probably here for the long haul now. But yeah, even beyond that, it was about assisting those clinicians and just feeling more confident in, in prescribing a drug, which has a lot of interactions. It does have interactions with kidney and liver and whatnot. So there's a fair bit going on there. And we're just kind of helping them to feel more confident in prescribing something which truly does help out where it's needed. Okay, great. Now I'm going to circle back to the questions I alluded to earlier. And that is in regards to de-identifying patient information. I'm just very curious about how this works, because what kind of patient information do you need in order to make the right prescription? And is this something that the clinician has to provide? Or is that something that you draw from somewhere else? Can you talk us through that? The key is that we're not necessarily de-identifying. It's just that the information we need isn't necessarily identifiable. So like we don't need to know the patient's name. We don't need to know their Medicare number. There is some information we do need, which is considered potentially personal identifiable information, like their age, for instance. Like a patient's age is a factor when it comes to their medication treatment. The way that we do it is to keep it as simple as possible only because obviously it becomes far more complex when you look at more detailed information. And one, we don't want to run the risk of that. But two, if it's not needed, what's the kind of purpose of us holding on to that? Patients don't want that, so we don't necessarily need that. So I guess the information we need is any information which can be important in making a recommendation for the patient. Those kind of factors like the age, weight, height, just factors like that are important, what current medications they're taking, what the actual diagnosis is. Those kind of factors that you can't use to be able to identify someone are the core of what we do. Now, the way we approach that, at least within our original tool, so Viral Check RX is the name of the um, MVP that we've built, the, the tool that is helping clinicians gain a better understanding of Paxlovid. Within that tool, it still requires some manual input from the clinician. So the clinician is still required to put that information in. They have to say, is the sex male or female? What's the pregnancy status? What's the age of the um, patient? That kind of stuff they still have to put in, and then it comes up with a potential recommendation. In future state, that information will be able to be extracted directly out of existing systems. So practice management software exists, and that's the kind of software that GPs and clinics use. And a lot of the information that we need is stored there. So our tool will extract that information automatically, run it through the system, and then make the recommendation. So one of the key elements that came about from our research really was that clinicians understood this to be a massive problem and they wanted to help. They want the time saving. They want the best outcome for the patient. Why would they not? But knowing that they are very time poor, the key was really around seamless integration into their workflows. They didn't want to have to go somewhere else. They didn't want to go to multiple different sites. And that's currently what they're doing. To get all this information, they have to jump to multiple different sites. If they want to accurately prescribe Paxlovid, they have to go to between five and 10 different areas to get the information. They said, we really want this to be as seamless and as integrated as possible. So the key will be that we extract that information out of that practice management software and it gives that recommendation very succinctly and it's able to, for them to be able to be accessed 
at that very simple level within their existing workflow. That's the key to the outcome as well. All right. So in terms of providing a recommendation to a clinician to make an accurate judgment call on what medication to, to provide a patient, ultimately, from a regulatory perspective, who bears responsibility there? Because let's say, hypothetically, there's a slight error in the data and you might have unintended consequences of actually ending up where you started with a misdiagnosis or a misapplication of medicine. So, yeah, have you thought about this at all? I'm sure you have, but I'd love to hear your reasoning. Mm, it's, it's obviously one of the key elements that we have to get right. That is one of the real risks we have. There's been very recent, actually, changes to regulations around software as a medical device within Australia. And so that's helped us to understand better what our tools could be and where they could fit within that. So that, that was very well received from us and, and the market in general. At the end of the day, we are giving a recommendation. So it still requires the clinician to make the final call. We are confident that we can get it to a position which is far more confident than what's existing at the moment. I think the key for us has actually been, Siobhan's experience has been amazingly useful. She's actually worked for the TGA. Obviously, the TGA is Australia's regulatory body. Within a health tech company, having regulatory experience has been amazing. There's obvious and very deliberate and very reasonable reasons why the regulatory environment in the health space is important. It's people's safety, people's lives are on the line here. So it's got to be a key focus for all companies. And it's one thing that a lot of health tech startups actually struggle with. How can you navigate the regulatory environment, which is somewhat complex, but obviously incredibly necessary. Siobhan's experience at the TGA has given us unrivaled benefit there, and it's really allowed us to more accurately and precisely navigate that environment. The information is provided from reputable sources and that we provide all that regular information as needed. Our full stack software, when we get to that point that is doing the extractions, that will probably be classified as software as a medical device, but we have that unbridled advantage of having Siobhan having had that experience so we can navigate that relatively quickly. But it's certainly something that is a key risk for any health tech company, but us specifically given the space we're playing in. That's really good to hear from a regulatory perspective within Australia. But obviously, you would have plans to scale beyond Australia, even within our region or across to different continents like Asia or the Americas, who all operate in different legislative environments. So how different do you need to make the product in order to service those markets? Yeah, it's a great question. And it is, it's a, it'll be a challenge. There's no doubt about that. Our plan and our roadmap for that global expansion phase is to originally target areas that have a more similar regulatory environment to ours. So areas like the UK, Singapore, and New Zealand, their regulatory environment's similar to ours. So that allows us to be able to navigate that more succinctly. But yeah, their guidelines are different. So from our perspective, the tool itself can scale relatively quickly because it's already, for the majority of the time, it's leveraging what already exists. So it's just a matter of extracting information from a different area. And like I said, one of the companies we're partnering with is called MIMS. They're one of the databases we have within our panel, I guess. And so they're a global company as well. It's more just a kind of switch there from one to the other. In terms of scalability, it's a truly scalable solution in that it's leveraging existing information 
seamlessly. It's just switching from one to the other, which makes it great. I think we, obviously there's some auditing that goes on in the back end of that, but the fact that we are, for the majority, leveraging existing information makes it quite an easy, scalable solution. The US is obviously a big market. The problem there, $530 billion a year. It's not small. It's not getting any smaller. We certainly have ambitions to, to go to that market. It's a slightly different regulatory market, particularly given the boxes you have to tick to get through that and the 501k classification that you need to receive. So we, like I said, we're going originally towards areas that have a similar regulatory environment. We'll then use the evidence that we're based from that to create that pathway into the US uh, so that we can then scale into that as well. The reimbursement structure allows for health tech companies to become more scalable across the systems. We want to get this one right first. We want to get the other markets similar to ours right and use that as the evidence to, to move into that big market. Sounds like you've got a pretty structured plan on how you're going to approach this. This is going to be anecdotal evidence, but I have multiple friends who work in the healthcare industry for multiple different hospitals here in Australia. And from what I gather, every hospital seems to have its own system, own data infrastructure, cyber infrastructure, and they all have to learn a new thing every time they switch to a different hospital. And from what I gather from other people working clinics, it's similar as well. So how does this fit into such a fragmented ecosystem of cyber infrastructure? I would say that's one of our biggest risks, probably the biggest risk we have as a company. And it's not necessarily just so much that it is fragmented because it is it's also just that you have a number of major players that you have to get right there's quite a small number of companies that have a monopoly across the board when it comes to these kind of systems i would say even in very recent times it's improved which it needed to do and hasn't done for a long period of time so we are getting now systems that talk to one another across individual hospitals now that's something that shouldn't be a problem but it's something that has been one ward not talking to someone else we're now getting systems that are allowing that to happen more seamlessly and across the board we're getting more information stored accurately which allows us to, to transfer that in a better way from our perspective it's really about the integration how we go about that our tool like i said is going to be very small in the way it feeds into these workflows. So we don't necessarily need this massive amount of work around getting that right. What we have to get right is the integration. Once we're integrated into one system, transitioning that to another is not necessarily difficult. That's the whole benefit to the scalability side of it. We don't have to worry about all these UI, UX elements that other companies may have to deal with. Once we're in, it allows us to, to move quite quickly and scale accordingly. There's a number of players that we have already spoken with, and so we've got a plan on how we go about that. But once we're integrated into one of these systems, it then allows us to prove our worth, which is the key. We know that our solution is going to improve patient outcomes. There's just no doubt about that. And once we have that proven by numbers, even just a very specific case of us saying, hey, this patient was going to be given this, they were given this instead, and it saved xyz that's the kind of thing we need and once you have that which is where we'll be able to get that relatively quickly that's when it can become much easier to say hey get this in now and as soon as you have people on board you can go accordingly we know that the key for us is going to be getting it right and so that's why the medical front is the key we 
get that right, we can then use that to to leverage across multiple different systems. Okay. So what's the traction that you've currently got in terms of success stories and what's been the feedback so far? Yeah. So as I said, we've got our MVP in at the moment. So Rolltrek RX is out there. We now have clinicians using that. There's been very positive feedback around what it is doing. So I think that that's key. We have a number of clinicians that are using it on a regular basis to be able to feel more confident in prescribing Paxlovid. That was obviously the key. So the feedback's been really good, actually. We're now getting return users, which is obviously a key traction point for us. We're using that to potentially build out the next solution as well. In terms of traction, it's been quite eye-opening that something like this wasn't there. But the fact that we are getting these positive responses is making it a whole lot more positive for us. Just being at people saying, I used this to do this and saved myself this, that's something that's actually very powerful when it comes to your own brand, but also your own level of confidence when you're creating a startup. It's been amazing for us. On the back of that, as a company, we've started to gain a lot of traction as well. We're obviously part of an accelerator program called the Luminar X Health Accelerator Program. It's arguably Australia's premier health tech accelerator. And on the back of that, we won an award at the end of the program. The Startup of the Year Award was amazing. Both Siobhan and I were nominated for Young Entrepreneurs of the Year, which was amazing as well. All these things really come from the success we've seen as a company, but also the sheer passion that we've got as well. Like we, we know this is a problem and we know that whether I wants to solve that. And I think that anyone who talks to us sees that. So I think that that's the key. And I think, yeah, it's just, it's been a wild ride, but it's already proving to be very, very positive for us. Awesome. Congratulations on winning the Startup of the Year Award, by the way. I didn't realize you guys were both nominated, but having heard you speak multiple times, I agree wholeheartedly. I did have one question coming off of your last answer, and that was, why hasn't there been a solution in this space before? And who else is in this space, if anybody? Yeah, it's a great question. To be totally honest, it took me a long time to understand it myself. It just seemed like something so logical. Like, it's why should we not have something that just does the hard work and the more accurate work for you? It's just, it, it kind of, I would, at first, I just, I didn't believe it. Like, I had to do my own research to find something out there. And the only reasons that we can really find is, first of all, it's not easy for all the points that we've already discussed, but also, just being able to get into the right people is difficult. You have to really have a understanding of the problem space and what the solution could be to even be able to talk to the right people. So even if companies have tried, they will have found very quickly that it's not as easy as just saying, here's a solution to this. You have to really understand it and be able to talk the language with the right people. It's just been very difficult and at times frustrating, but we've really concentrated on understanding the problem so that we can have the right conversations. So that I would say is is probably just the main problem. But even beyond that, there's other things like, yeah, the regulatory environment's complex and it is it is something you have to get right. And I know there's other companies that are in the health space that have really struggled with it. And it's one of the things that has been a barrier to entry for a lot. Again, Siobhan's experience in that space has been amazing for us in that it's it's one thing that we didn't have to worry about so much, whereas everyone else has really had to get a grasp of that and understand a whole new world. We've already had that foundation, which was amazing. 
there's other factors that I think one of them is around that risk that you spoke about, that the indemnified side of things. That's something, again, you have to do it in a way that suggests that it is the best possible recommendation, but it is just that recommendation. So that's another factor as well. In terms of kind of the competitive landscape, as I said, medication errors in general are very broad and there are quite a few companies that are looking at medications in general. A number of those, MedAdvisor is an Australian company, they're dealing more on the kind of adherence and compliance phase. So like, you know, saying, make sure this person takes their medication. Here's when you need to take your meds, blah, 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 which is a big problem. But our research has actually suggested that of all medication errors, 60% come from the prescribing or thereabouts phase. So it's a key problem that not necessarily anyone has kind of gotten right just yet. There is one company out of Israel called MedAware, and they are looking at prescribing errors. So they're doing the problem space we're looking at. But the way they're solving it is by saying, here's a whole heap of data. Is there an outlier there? So if someone prescribes this for a specific disease, it'll flag it and say, hey, based on previous experience, that doesn't sit right. That That is an element of things. Like there are going to be times when that has its time and place. But our solution is very much more patient-centric. It's saying, why wait till after the fact? Let's say this up front, like given the patient's information, here's what they should get anyway. This is more based in that clinical guideline as opposed to just being data-driven. Obviously, a data-driven solution requires data. And so data is particularly difficult to come by in the health space. And you need a lot of it to be able to say when something is or not always statistically significant. That is a kind of shortfall there. But even beyond that, what about when something's been systemically incorrectly prescribed? If there's something that's always been prescribed this way and it's like it may not be life-threatening but it's causing potential small issues and it's just kind of ongoing, that won't be flagged. Having a clinical solution to this problem yeah, covers all of that and really allows the patient to be given the best possible outcome. All right, so looking forward to the future of metadata, what do you think are the next steps that you need to test or any hypotheses that you need to test? Yeah. So as I said, the key when it comes to that full stack software solution is going to be the integration front. That's really where we need to get. And we need to be in a position where it is seamless for clinicians. So I guess our goal is to ensure that the software that we're building is able to be fully and seamlessly integrated into the workflow of a clinician. And that's that's a challenge, but it's also the goal that we need to get to. And the way we've set it up is that that is the focus of the tech build itself. We're putting it at the front and center of that build. We're currently building out that that solution. And so we're concentrating on a number of drug classes. Obviously, our MVP is built around one drug. There's thousands of drugs out there. So we're broadening that into other drug classes. And then we'll expand, obviously, from there into the full suite of drugs, which is Part of the benefit of our solution is that, like I said, it's very scalable. And the fact that it's based on existing clinical guidelines means that we can, once we got it right, for one, it's just a matter of extracting the next one and the next one. It's not necessarily a, a difficult task to be able to extract multiple different tasks. So I guess the current goal is to have that software seamlessly integrated into practice management softwares and then extracting the medical information starting with a number of drug classes and expand beyond that. We are concentrating on the GP market to begin with, and that's very much by choice. Um, the research we've done suggests that GPs are a market that 
needs this solution. We have research that suggests that GPs and clinics will pay for the solution, which is obviously a key from a business perspective. And so we're targeting that. And there's also the added benefit of it just being somewhat easier to integrate into a practice management software than it is to integrate into a hospital setting. So hospitals, for instance, are probably the key target audience for us. That's where a number of medication errors occur, but there's also a massive economic benefit from getting it right as well. If we get it wrong, someone stays in hospital longer, take up beds, beds can cost up to $10,000 a day. So it's not like it's a small thing, but yeah, the integration of those systems is more difficult. So we're targeting the GP market to begin with. We'll use that to get some paying customers and we'll then expand into other areas, like I said, hospital side of things, aged care facilities, given the quantity of errors and the complexity of those medication management pathways is a huge one as well. And that's all expand beyond that as well. So in terms of reaching out to GPs, there's obviously vastly many more GPs than there are hospitals. How do you plan on approaching the sales and marketing towards that? Because it, it seems like you'll need to spread yourself pretty thinly to get those networks. Yeah. Yeah, you're 100% right. There's obviously a, a large number there. It, as both a pro and con is that there are only a small number of major practice management software. So once you kind of one or two, you have a massive spread across the country already. But it is about that kind of sales and the distribution that's, that's really the key. Through our tool, ViralCheck RX, we're getting a broad number of GPs information on hand ourselves so we already have this network that's continuing to build we'll have a massive network before we even have that ready to go if we have a broad network across the country from gp perspective we can then leverage that to to distribute accordingly which is huge because it is one of the big key challenges and gps are notoriously difficult to sell to just being able to get in there is a difficult thing having that network as well as just the network we've built up through our mentor network experience across the health space has been huge and that will allow us to go accordingly but then part of having a startup company is the sales side of things so yeah i'll probably be making cold calls and cold emails as well but that's all part of the fun all right do you have anybody you'd love to partner with any dream partners you'd like to buddy up with oh i mean yeah of course the key for us is on the practice management side so we have been talking to and got potential partnerships with a number of those, but it's really about getting that one right. So the the genies, the epics, the best practice medical directors of the world, they're the ones we need to get into and get right first. Um, then we can partner with the big guys like the Cerners of the world that have a near monopoly across hospital sector and particularly in this country. So yeah, that's the plan. Okay. So at the moment, it's just yourself and Siobhan. Do you have any plans on building out the team, raising for the money, and anything that you'd like to share in that space? Yeah, so we actually have a pre-seed round that we've just very recently opened up. If there's any potential investors that have liked what they've heard about this potential solution and the problem space in general, they can certainly reach out. We're always open to hearing more there. But the plan is to grow relatively quickly. Once we've got the software built, which is really the key focus for the next sort of six to 12 months, getting that software integrated into the GB clinics, get some paying customers, and then really expand accordingly and quickly on the back of that. We're looking to potentially bring in some new team members shortly. And yeah, if you want to follow my socials, I'm sure you can hear more about that in the coming months. 
we'll get those at the very end of the show, just so they're fresh in people's minds as the episode wraps up. Okay, so now I'm wondering, this is obviously a massive problem to solve, and it sounds like you guys have the right solution for it. So I'm wondering, if everything goes right for you, what does the world look like? Yeah, I guess we have very bold ambitions that go well beyond this. I mean, our very basic mantra is that we want a world where patients feel comfortable and confident with the medications that they're getting. And at the moment, they're probably not. They don't necessarily know. So we want a world where that's just everyone just feels comfortable and confident with that. But it goes beyond that. When our solution is making a difference like that, we get access to so many different things as well. So we have other potential revenue streams that we're already considering on the back of that. So we can improve other areas of the hospital, the GP and the aged care facilities, pharmacist workflows. For instance, one of the things that we'll be offering is after the fact analytics and auditing services as well. So we can kind of say this doctor prescribed this 25 times when a normal doctor is only doing it three or four times. Maybe they should do this, this, this differently. So we can actually improve multiple different things from the outset, they may not be things that lead to medication errors or anything, but they may not lead to the best outcome. We can make changes from the very beginning. Those kind of services are things that we're looking at incorporating into a solution package. Pharmacovigilance obviously is a big thing as well when it, like, when it comes to adverse reactions to medications and the reporting of such. That's still a relatively, I guess, I wouldn't say primitive because it's been around for a long time, but it's something that hasn't necessarily been at the forefront of pharmaceutical companies, but even clinicians as well. When you have access to the breadth of data that we will, we can then offer an additional lens around pharmacovigilance, and that can have massive scope on potential outcomes in that if we can kind of say, hey, there's a whole swath of people that are reacting to this this way, yet they're not reacting to this this way, maybe we could shift the dial a little bit there, change dosage and duration of all these different products so we can work with pharmaceutical companies to get to the best outcome by utilizing that data as well. As cliche as it is, the sky really is the limit on what we can influence. And I think that's that's what kind of drives us. We know that we can create a solution which helps clinicians to prescribe more accurately. We know that, but we also know that we can have so much of an influence across the entire health sector. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Fantastic. I really honestly hope that we see that future, given the skepticism around particular kinds of medication that we read about all the time nowadays. So looking towards that future, what's something you think you're willing to to commit to, to achieving that future? Yeah. First of all, I'm committed to a hell of a lot of near sleepless nights over the next couple of years. That's certainly happening. But I think there's got to be an element of give and take from our side in that we know there's a big struggle ahead of us. Like I said, selling software to clinicians and that kind of stuff is particularly difficult. It's selling to hospitals is even longer. The sales cycles are massive. So we're in for a long and probably bumpy ride. When people say that having a startup is something that is not easy and that there's massive highs and lows, they're not lying. It's one day you get this amazing, amazing feedback. The next day it's something else and you're down again. So it is a wild ride and it's not for everyone, but it's part of what I love about being an entrepreneur and being a founder is that that is, you never know what you're going to get. But I guess from our side, we 
we don't just know that there's a potential that we are going to have these multiple downs and there's going to be a hard road ahead. It's kind of what we want. We want to be able to work through that and get to that. And the only way you can do that is to really understand the problem and get to the bottom of it through conversations, discussions with the right people, important people that have that are decision makers and whatnot. We know that and we're willing to do that and we want to do that because that will help us get to the right solution. In terms of saying something that I'm willing to give up, I don't know if I'm necessarily giving up anything because it's what I would want anyway. I've already given up a lot of cash of my own, so there's that and that's probably not going to change. We still aren't paying ourselves, so there's still that. But yeah, from my perspective, it's not about giving anything up. It's about doing it right and doing it right doesn't sometimes mean that it's not always shiny and bright. Sometimes there are challenges along the way and I wouldn't want it any other way. Fantastic. I couldn't think of a better way for us to wrap up our conversation today, Brock. Last thing that I'll get you to throw out are the social links. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, let us know how. Yeah, certainly just add me on LinkedIn, Metadata as well. You can jump on the Metadata LinkedIn page. We have a Metadata website. You can contact us through that. Any way to reach out to me, I'm always happy to discuss what we're working on, the problem space in general, or just any other kind of prospective entrepreneurs as well. I can certainly give my journey to date and give some info and hopefully some feedback on what you might want to be achieving in your own startup. So yeah, always happy to chat. Awesome. Brock, it has been a real pleasure to chat today. I hope you've had a good time as well. I was wondering if you'd like to check back in in about a year or so and see how metadata is going. Absolutely. I'm ball. Thank you. And I'm yep, always keen to. That'd be great to, to chat again. And hopefully we can showcase all that we've achieved in that time. Fantastic. Thanks once again, Brock. And that's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm or DM me on Twitter at sean underscore AHD. Otherwise, stay tuned, subscribe, and learn what it's like before the success when what we've got is promise.